Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, May 14th. In today's news, 40% of American households making less than $40,000 a year lost a job in March. The Wisconsin Supreme Court strikes down that governor's stay-at-home order. And the sidelined federal vaccine chief will testify today that we're headed for the darkest winter in modern history if the Trump administration doesn't get its act together. But first, the big idea. Brian Marquard has spent years confronting death through writing about lives. As the obituaries editor at the Boston Globe, he has conducted thousands of interviews over the past 14 years. But never have the conversations been as affecting as now. Never has he received such reader feedback or so many requests for stories. He told the Post's Alahe Azadi, there's never been anything like this. Across the board, Brian says, every part of this job is more intense. At least 83,304 Americans have died as of this morning from the coronavirus. Yesterday alone, 1,641 more deaths were reported. This has put new focus on a time-honored but frequently overlooked side of the newspaper business. At a time when social distancing has forced us to abandon many of our usual grief rituals, obituaries and paid death notices have turned into important proxies for mourning. And their sheer volume on the printed page is a stark reminder of a disease that might otherwise be invisible for many readers. The impact of COVID-19 is most dramatically seen for many papers in a rise in the number of death notices. The paid ads written and submitted by families and funeral homes, which often run alongside staff-written news obituaries. On May 3rd, the Boston Globe ran 23 pages of them, compared with seven pages during the comparable date a year ago. Not all of these deaths were from COVID, but to see that jumbo-sized section was sobering for many readers nonetheless. At the Chicago Sun-Times, the striking change hasn't been more submissions of death notices, but ones that are longer on average, with more details from the lives of the deceased. Some almost feel like substitutes for eulogies yet to be delivered now that so many memorial services and funerals have been indefinitely postponed. One Chicago death notice listed the name of every cat the deceased had ever owned. The pace and volume of misinformation about the coronavirus is unlike anything we've seen before. In this fraught political climate, with some promoting skepticism about the severity of the epidemic, Maureen O'Donnell, an obituary writer at the Chicago Sun-Times, has received notes from readers questioning whether her story subjects really died of COVID-19. She sees her role as bearing witness to what's happening in our country. In many newsrooms, including The Globe, The Washington Post, and The Seattle Times, reporters from different sections have been reassigned to the task of capturing stories of the dead. The Seattle Times, which covers one of the first communities hit by the contagion, had no full-time obituary writer. They put someone onto the beat to give more prominence to the human toll this was taking. Obituary writers have always had to make difficult decisions, picking and choosing whom to write about among so many dead. Fielding requests to write about COVID-19 victims, Maureen in Chicago has tried to capture a range of lives, from Amelia Pontarelli, a matriarch of an Italian deli in the Windy City, to the internationally acclaimed singer-songwriter John Prine. The scale of death in this moment reminds some of the longtime obituary writers of the aftermath of September 11th or the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. John Pope, who contributes to the Times-Picayune in New Orleans, 
remembers writing back then about people who didn't know who might die next from AIDS and whether they would, too, be struck down by that new, then little understood virus. John says that with the coronavirus, he senses the same sorrow and anxiety. John has also tried to write about a cross-section of society, like a 63-year-old community college educator who started a resource center for women and quietly supported needy students for decades, paying for their bus passes and textbooks out of her own pocket. John says he's never had so much response online to an obituary as he did for that one. There's so much love for this woman among people that she helped over the years. Her name was Melanie Deffendahl. Here are a few other faces of the fallen. Larry Noakes, a Maryland nursing assistant, was put on a ventilator after testing positive for the virus. He woke up from a coma a week later to find that the contagion had taken his wife of 24 years, Minette. She was 71. Larry died eight days after she did. After asking medical staff to let him sign a do-not-resuscitate order, he was 69. Leroy Tonic Sr., a 96-year-old World War II veteran, and his 64-year-old son, Leroy Tonic Jr., both died from the virus, days apart in separate nursing homes. Belly Muhinga, a British rail worker, died after being spat upon by a man who said he had the virus. The 47-year-old leaves behind an 11-year-old daughter. Authorities are looking into the attack. Joyce Lynn, an American missionary pilot, died in a plane crash while trying to deliver coronavirus testing kits to a remote village in Indonesia. She was a native of Maryland, and she was 40 years old. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell gave a dire warning yesterday that the U.S. economy could become stuck in a painful multi-year recession if Congress and the White House do not authorize more aid to address the pandemic's economic fallout. Powell said in a video conference that additional fiscal support could be, quote, costly, but worth it if it avoids a long-term depression. Powell's statement was a sharp departure from the optimism Trump and some senior administration officials have touted in recent days as they've suggested a dramatic economic rebound will occur later this year and pick up more momentum in 2021. Powell, who was appointed by the president, says he's concerned about a domino effect, where consumers lose jobs and then sharply cut spending. That, in turn, can cause more restaurants, gyms, and other businesses to close. Companies that go out of business stop paying their suppliers, which then drag down other firms. More than 27 million Americans are now out of work. A growing number of companies are going bankrupt or closing permanently, a trend economists warn will only intensify as this slowdown drags out. Lawmakers are now in a standoff with the president about next steps. Both Democrats and Republicans have expressed agreement that more should be done, but there's little overlap between their priorities. House Democrats proposed a $3 trillion package this week that could provide another round of stimulus checks and massive aid to states and cities. But Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, the Republican from Kentucky, immediately declared that dead on arrival. Republicans and some Trump officials are under pressure to approve more spending, but also slow down while they wait to see whether the existing programs are having any impact. Powell said that low-income Americans are facing the brunt of this crisis, and they have the least ability to handle it. He said a Fed survey that's going to come out later this week will show that almost 40 percent of U.S. households making less than $40,000 a year lost a job in March. Number two, 
The Wisconsin Supreme Court's conservative majority sided with Republican legislators last night and struck down the decision by Democratic Governor Tony Evers' administration to extend the state's stay-at-home order. The 4-3 to decision limits Evers' ability to make statewide rules during emergencies, instead requiring him to work with the state legislature on how they should handle the outbreak together. Evers condemned the decision, saying that Wisconsin was in a pretty good place, but now, quote, Republican legislators have convinced four justices to throw our state into chaos. Evers issued a stay-at-home order in March to slow the spread, but as the April 24th end date approached, he extended the order until May 26th. The court order ended it effective immediately, and there are pictures from Wisconsin of hundreds of people at bars around the state drinking and not social distancing. Coronavirus cases have been on the rise in Wisconsin with nearly 11,000 confirmed infections and 421 deaths. Local officials in the liberal city of Madison, as well as the blue counties of Dane and Milwaukee, rushed last night to issue their own stay-at-home orders through the end of the month to replace the state order. A Marquette University poll this week shows that 70% of adults in the Badger State support Evers' stay-at-home order, but support has been plummeting among Republicans. Number three. Rick Bright, the government's former top vaccine official who was removed from his post last month, will testify before Congress later today that the United States faces the, quote, darkest winter in modern history if it does not develop a more coordinated national response to the coronavirus before an expected resurgence of new cases later this year. In prepared testimony submitted to a House subcommittee, Bright plans to say, quote, our window of opportunity is closing if we fail to develop a national coordinated response based in science. I fear the pandemic will get far worse and be prolonged, causing unprecedented illness and fatalities. While it's terrifying to acknowledge the extent of the challenge that we currently confront, the undeniable fact is there will be a resurgence of COVID-19 this fall, greatly compounding the challenges of seasonal influenza and putting an unprecedented strain on our healthcare system. Without clear planning and implementation of the steps that I and other experts have outlined, 2020 will be the darkest winter in modern history. The first priority, he says, is being truthful with the American people. Bright, the former director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, was removed on April 20th after having served in the position for nearly four years. He was demoted to a narrower role at the National Institutes of Health. Last week, he filed an 89-page whistleblower complaint in which he writes that he was pressured by Trump political appointees to make potentially harmful drugs widely available, including chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, which Trump had repeatedly heralded. He says the Trump administration still lacks any national testing strategy and needs to ramp up production dramatically of essential equipment and supplies. Bright also notes that he clashed with his boss, HHS Assistant Secretary Bob Cadlick, for at least two years. He alleges in the complaint that Cadlick and others pressured him to buy drugs and medical products for the nation's stockpile of emergency medical equipment from companies that were linked politically to the administration, including donors. He's turned over emails to show that he resisted such efforts. A spokeswoman for the Trump administration replied in a statement that they are deeply disappointed that Bright has not shown up to work in the lower level job that he was pushed into at NIH. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, May 14th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.